That's about that. That's about it for all that stuff. So today, um, we're still in this uh, sermon series. Uh, what is it? <laughs> Ruined a renovation, sorry. And uh, we are, we are uh, going from, we're using Dallas Willard's book, Ruined a Re- uh, Renovation of the Heart. I, I confuse my titles. Um, as sort of this guide of, of going through this thing. So I just want to make sure we plug Dallas Willard well, because a lot of my words are coming directly from him. And, and so we just w- really want to uh, give him the credit where credit is due. But today uh, we address the soul's formation. Uh, the soul's formation, which is seen in how the thoughts and feelings and social relations and our bodily habits and our behaviors and our choices all of which unfold and uh, interact with each other. So it reveals sort of our, you know, our inner soul reveals sort of our overall character uh, of a person, right? And, and that is our window of the soul. Our character is sort of our window of the soul. In Luke 6.45, Jesus speaks of this window, I think. He says, the good man brings, out, uh, brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out, out, of, out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So there's just the sense of stuff in you just coming out of you, right? Um, good or evil, right? Uh, good or evil naturally emanating from souls due to how they've been spiritually formed. And we say people have good character or bad character, and it's not necessarily a judgment on a person, but it is much more of just an observation. Sometimes we see good character and bad character in people. And what's particularly disturbing to me is that somewhere in our worldview shift, I think we had a worldview shift somewhere in the 1960s, 70s, stuff like that, but after that in the 1990s, bad character became somewhat elevated as good, right? We've kind of changed how we view things. And now we have these conflicted characters in, in uh, movies and theater and all that kind of stuff applauded for their violence and their moral liquidity, right? Villains have become our heroes. You know, morally compromised people have become our heroes. The movie Righteous Kill, which you may or may not have seen, it was, I was bored watching Netflix once, and uh, saw this movie. It's not a great movie. Don't, don't go run out and see it. But Righteous Kill, it's got uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino in it, old, old heads, right? Uh, where they are two cops who enjoy this long career with one another as partners, and they struggle under this moral contradiction, right? Uh, the one, Al Pacino, admires the other, Robert De Niro, as his hero and his mentor because he's such a good, straight-laced cop, right? But when the mentor... De Niro decides to take justice in his own hands this one time in his career, career and plant evidence on this guy who had gotten off on a technicality for murder and rape or something like that. His partner takes notice of that. And as a result, the partner secretly becomes this serial killer of guilty people, people that he thinks are guilty, justifying his actions on the one action of his partner, the one morally compromised action of his partner. One mistake on the good cop's part, is, you know, which you're, what the viewer is sort of led to believe is morally justifiable at the time, leads to more evil in his partner. And, you know, you could, you could never imagine right now in a movie morally upright 
uh, characters going home to a loving wife and family fighting for truth and justice, you know, without anything wrong with them. Right now, it's always the drunken gumshoe, right? The drunken gumshoe who's gone through a devastating divorce. The story's always the same because he's too addicted to his job. And he upsets his boss and he's not able to live in healthy balance of work and family life and and with proper boundaries in his life at all. Instead, he's incapable of really loving other people around him, loving his wife and loving his kids. And he's always justifiably bending the law in his job in morally pliant ways. We don't have well, that's that's the character that we live right, with right now. And in between drunken bouts of rage, he does some wonderful police work, and we hold him up as the model, right? But character is important, and it's formed over many years to varying degrees in people, right? And we know that many people find themselves in this deep self conflict at the soul level. We know what it's like to live in self-contradiction. We're not saying we're all perfect. We know what it's like to have to know what godly character would call us to do in any given situation, but not having the desire to do it and not following through with it. Like our two past sermons in speaking about assault and withdrawal, We don't want to do those things. We don't want to assault people verbally or in other ways. We don't want to withdraw our love from people and all that stuff. But sometimes we find ourselves doing those things and justifying ourselves in the process. You know, we muster willpower to to not react to someone in some certain situation. and, And, you know, one small word from them and we attack or we go silent. We do it anyway. And loving action is pawned off for self-justified revenge or avoidance. We're all being spiritually formed, and the question is, to what end? Towards Christ-likeness or not? That's the question. It has been throughout this whole series. And there are extremes out there in the world of good and evil, right? There are those extremes, but there's also all the rest of us who on this spectrum, living within a state of self-contradiction. Having thoughts of good intention, and at times not seeing those things come to fruition, and at other times, seeing them come to fruition. Sometimes we live well, sometimes we don't. The formation of the soul. This weird thing, that aspect of your whole being, which correlates and integrates and enlivens everything going on in the various components of yourself. It's the life center of who we are, right? What takes that all that is you and all the external experiences that you have in your life and regulates them overall in this life governance, right? The soul's foundational Right? It is a foundational to who we are. It, it's almost totally beyond our conscious awareness. You know, you don't think about your soul. You don't wake up in the morning and say, how's my soul doing? Right? We do have a book, How's Your Soul? Put out by the vineyard. But we don't think about that. How's my soul? It's intangible. It's spiritual. It's hard to speak of. And we can almost only give images of 
of already formed souls exempt, that exemplify good or evil intent in their lives. Character being the soul's window on how we live and react to the world around us. Psalm 1 gives us an image of a soul that is well formed in the confines of grace, a gracious relationship with God. It, said, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorner, scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Sounds like a good life to me. The one difference is that he delights in the law of the Lord. That's an image of a well-kept heart. A spiritually formed heart in Christ, right? A soul ordered under God and in harmony with all of reality around it. A person prepared for and capable of responding to life in situations and in ways which are good and right and healthy. The good man who brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. It's just overflowing out of them, right? This soul connection to the divine soul just comes out of us in how we live our lives. His inclinations have become uh, naturally godly inclinations, right? Not locked in self-conflict or contradiction or compromise, but assured of what's good and life-giving and rejoicing in that. He doesn't struggle to do as Jesus did. It just naturally happens in his life or her life. Naturally comes out of them. You know, physically healthy people make different choices than unhealthy people. Um, They practice portion control and they seek nutritional value in the the foods that they eat. And they're, they're inclined towards activity and they're inclined towards exercise. And it shows in their physical uh, uh, stature, their countenance, and, and their mental health. Psalm 1 is the image of a person with godly inclinations which have become natural inclinations. It's no longer trying to be good. They just are good. Right? Healthy inclinations which create in them a state of goodness of soul that is reflective of God. A feeding on the nutritional value of God's Word. They're able to react in healthy ways, right? They're they're soul at peace, even in outward chaos, even when everything else has fallen apart. Psalm 1 reminds us of Romans 12, 1 and 2, which has been coming up over and over again and, and just confronting us all the time throughout this series. Psalm 1, the man is partly defined by what he doesn't do. Right? What he, what, he, what he can't do. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the seat of scorners or, or the path of, of sinners or, or sit in the seat of the scornful person. Right? He doesn't do those things. And the same is true of Romans 12 where that person is called not to conform to the patterns of this world. Not to do those things. Not to live in those ways. 
And these are people who don't determine their course of action by culture or humanistic wisdom, not even by TED Talks, as good as they are. Right? You love TED Talks, don't you, Rob? Rob loves TED Talks. <laughs> but they don't, they don't govern their, their course of action by this culture, by, by humanistic endeavor or wisdom and all that kind of stuff. It's not that they don't listen to the things around them. It's not that they're closed off to hearing things or anything like that. Or the, you know, they, they engage with the world around them, but they measure all things against the Word of God. That is the final authority. They don't live as if God doesn't exist making decisions derived solely from human understanding. That's not how they live. They know and they love the standards of God. That is their first and foremost most delight. They know that they have been formed or they've been redeemed by their inability or, or from their inability to live up to the law of God. They know they can't do that. But they are grateful for the beautiful truth of it and they feed themselves on it and they live in obedience to it as best they can. Because it, it is the beautiful word of God. It is the beautiful law of God. It is the perfect law of God. Those without this divine sort of directive even if they have a strong sense of morality in their lives, will always compromise the good that they're called to, like Robert De Niro in Righteous Kill. They'll always be confronted and compromised. Since they don't have that foundational strength from a connection to the Father, the the good stored up within them just doesn't pour out of them. They don't have the sense of safety in Christ that Colossians 3.3 tells us that we are hidden, our lives are hidden away with Him, that nothing else can harm us, even when we say no to the, the evil that goes on around us. They become arrogant, they become judgmental, they become the scornful, constantly defining and redefining right and wrong in order to justify themselves. Scorning all who don't agree with them just as De Niro did in the movie with his partner when he's walking out to plant the evidence. While the person whose soul's inclined towards Jesus will live in peace, even in chaos. They will live in peace, enjoying Him in satisfying relationship under the safety of God's grace, living in obedience to the healthy standard of God's law, They know right and wrong from the Scriptures, letting God define sin and goodness for them, no one else, and especially not an increasingly godless culture around them. That's not who defines your good and your right and your wrong and all that kind of stuff. Jeremiah 17.5-8 draws this clear comparison of the two different kinds of people. It said, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. Don't you love those word pictures? In a salt land where nobody lives. We were talking about Death Valley a couple weeks ago. That's where that guy lives, right? Just in this desert, right? But verse 7, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. What is it, sycamores? You ever 
like notice along creek beds around here in, in, in the northeast, sycamore trees just grow huge and strong. They're just always planted right by water and they're just reaching out, right? It doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, even when everything goes dry around it. It doesn't have any worries. And it never fails to bear fruit. Trees don't like to bear fruit, right? It's not what they do. They just bear fruit because they're soaking it all up, all the nutrients and everything else. Like a tree planted by a river, sending down roots and drawing nourishment and water up through, through its roots. No, no matter what the weather conditions are on the surface of the ground, they, they are vibrantly alive and they are always fruitful. But for so many, that, that seems like an impossibility. That seems like a pipe dream. You can't imagine that, right? So they settle for a life of internal conflict and compromise. Their focus off Jesus, their focus off of the Word, never asking, how's my soul with you, Lord? How is my soul? And internally and sometimes externally, for that person, it's chaos and confusion, depending on how well you hide it. Living out of unsatiated desires, right? out of illusions, out of dreams, enslaved to false ideas. That's that kind of a person. Blown and tossed by every new idea, every new teaching and fad and issue that comes up in the news, right? Controlled by bodily habits and falsehoods and misinformation. If you find yourself in constant uh, inner turmoil... Maybe you need to go back to the Word. Maybe you need to go back to your brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for help. And maybe you need to go back into an extended time of Davidic prayer and ask God, how's my soul? Where is my soul sick? And remembering that this isn't something that's solved in one sitting. That's okay. It doesn't just turn on. This is a lifetime of journey, of relational develop with Jesus, standing on a revealed scriptural truth, you know, understanding the Word of God over a long period of time and within the confines of the healthy, orthodox local church body, teaching you well. Read through Proverbs, and you will meet many of these people that are in turmoil. Or in Ecclesiastes 5.3, many words mark the speech of a fool. <laughs> right? You ever meet a person that just babbles and babbles and babbles and you're like, I don't know what to believe about you. And you just walk away confused. You take on their confusion because there's something going on there that's not of God. And when confronted with what the fool needs to get right or to get whole or be made whole or calm down and get, start to make better decisions and all that stuff. They make excuses. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and despise instruction. So true. And we're all foolish at different times, aren't we? But that person can't get their act together. It doesn't ever come together for them. They've, learned, they've, they've not learned to find rest in Christ. They've not learned to find rest in the body of Christ, the church. 
They can't interact with people well. Connection of our soul with Christ uh, you know, uh, brings with it this strength and this power. It's beyond psychology. I've got to say that more strongly. It is, this is not pop psychology. There is a spiritual reality going on here. There is a power, right? It comes with it, this power, this guidance, this awareness, this ability to live out of the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10. The fruit that just naturally produces in our life as a result of being in Christ. See, we can't suppress the soul forever, right? We can't just keep it buried. We can't just keep feeding it garbage. The very fundamental aspects of life are soul functions. Art and sleep and sex and and ritual and family and parenting and community and health and meaningful work. Those are all soul functions. And these things suffer when the soul is sick. Suffers, right? And that's why your spiritual formation affects and infects everyone else around you. You think it doesn't do, doesn't do anything to other people around you, but it does. One of our greatest societal problems right now is this meaninglessness and this hopelessness that is perpetuated in Western culture, maybe even in the whole world. One of our, you know, it, it, you feel it. Everybody feels it. Consider how many suicides we've, we've witnessed just by famous people in the last few years. Think about the messages that we hear of meaninglessness in theater and art and music and all that stuff. Think of the meaningless acts of, of disregarding people's well-being of, from school shootings to separations of families to sex trafficking or what have you. Or, or simply the, the broken relationships within your own household. Meaninglessness pervades as the grander purpose of Christ is sort of wiped off the cultural chalkboard of life. We don't have any standing anymore. And as a result, we can only put band-aids on the externals. Nothing really works. It's a societal soul problem. It's way down deep. Spiritual formation of the believer, good, strong spiritual formation of the believer, and evangelism of the non-believer are the only true answers to our social ills. Your king, Jesus said it, by the way. He said, your kingdom come now. Your will be done now. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. That's what He was saying. And you might say, well, that's too simplistic of an answer, Pastor. Well, the answer may be simple, but it's not simplistic and it's definitely not easy. Almost any and every solution in life is the simple one. But they are not always easy to carry out. To have a soul so rooted so deeply in Christ and at peace with Him to effectively communicate that in word and deed and this naturally coming out of you to others is far from easy. That's a lot of deep, powerful work in your life with the Lord. That's a lot of dying to self. 
It is, it, but it is the one light, light of peace light of all the others. That's being a change agent in the world. See, meaning is one of the greatest soul needs, maybe the most basic soul need that we have. We all need meaning. When meaning's present, almost anything can be endured. Any chaos, any craziness. Death can be endured. When it's not, we're left with only boredom and only despair. The insatiable desire to fill the void with fleeting pleasures and fleeting trinkets we buy on the shelves. There's no true internal drive in us without true meaning, deep meaning. And the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it, reveals that there's no true meaning found in anything under the sun except for the ultimate pursuit of your relationship with God. That's the only place that we can find true meaning. A dead religion is one which has lost that connection to Jesus, has disregarded His Word, and has allowed humanistic wisdom to define what it is. And it goes off in all these offshoots, which always ends in despair. Always, always, always. It never works in the long run. Despair as we seek success in ministry, ignoring the deeper problem of the human sinful condition. Our deep, powerful soul need for Jesus. And therefore, when people sin or when they, you know, they take advantage of us or they, they constantly undermine themselves with making bad decisions due to the lack of spiritual power that they have, it doesn't fit our construct. The deeper issue is humanity's soul connection with Christ. Evangelism, including the repentance of sin, coming under the Lordship of Christ, communicated in true love, has to always go hand in hand with our physical ministry towards people. Then and only then can we withstand the knocks and the disappointments and stay the course of ministry in this world. Because we have deeper meaning than just hands outs or a job or anything like that. Where divine meaning is lacking, performance becomes king. And we see this oh so well in American society. We see this in all aspects of life, but maybe none more so than in sports. Some of you are sports fanatics, and you're going to get mad at me right now. Get mad. But think about it. Sports create in us this illusion of meaning. We worship at its altar. We really do. And it creates in us this fleeting, small, almost magical moment of what we think is meaningful, but it is really so shallow that as soon as our team loses a game or loses the championship, we tear our city apart. And sometimes we do that when they win. How crazy is that? We destroy everything, right? But this is also seen in art and politics and even religion when, you know, we put pastors and leaders on pedestals as long as they deliver the goods, but when they fail, we disregard them like old sneakers, not realizing that we have been complicit in creating our monsters. Fanaticism in any area is the result of inherently meaningless lives becoming obsessed with performance and trying to bring all of our existence into that thing. 
You're going to go home and throw out your eagle's cap now, right? Being the best fan, being the most devoted of followers to some cause is treated as something deep and important to us, but in reality it's a facade to answer our own deeper soul need. The anger, the vitriol, the craziness, the yelling, the tearing of cities apart. That's so crazy. For something so shallow. (laughs) In Indonesia, they would have soccer games, and when they lost, they would throw bricks at each other, and then the cops would come out and shoot their guns in the air, and everybody would disperse. (laughs) It was crazy. It's crazy. It's entertaining to watch, but it was crazy. But just watch the opening ceremonies of the Super Bowl or the Olympics, especially the games in Greece. And I think when the statue of Aphrodite rose up out of the center of the, the whole stadium. We, and we will witness, when you see those things, you will witness the altar of humanistic worship. You really will. Our fanaticism and our meaningless is driven by something spiritual, but it's not God. It's really not. It's not that you shouldn't enjoy these things, but it needs to be in balance, doesn't it? It really does. Because such people haven't cultivated a soul directed towards good and rooted in the one true God. Allowing a flow outside of themselves to come into them and to take over all their thought and all their feeling and all their behavior and all the societal relations and et cetera and so on and so forth. Everything that they are. You know, it's all intoxicating for sure, but, but it's not subjected to the tests of truth or reality or godly values at all. We see this not just in sports and religion and art, but we also see it in sex and success in the workplace. And even your own children can become a false sense of overall meaning for you. A soul that is hungry for meaning, but only you know, gaining a false sense of it through some other, other avenue other than Christ is easy, easy, easy prey to the pressures and the flow of, of a society and the inevitable failures of all of our idols. Always. And we sometimes see this in the vitriol of politics, our meaning being too tied to our candidates and our parties and our issues and not drawing it from Jesus. If it were, we... You know, it would bring peace and and healthy, life-giving conversation to all this, allowing God to move in society. We wouldn't be driving people apart. We'd be bringing them together. Our focus on Christ for soul care can be diverted even in the good things of life, even in our religion, even in our good issues and causes and all that stuff. Great despots of the world know these things. Hitler incarcerated Jews. He made them to move mountains of gravel from one side of the compound to the other and back again and over and over and over again. And then he uh, gassed them and he shot them and he performed uh, experiments on them in an effort to rob people of their very soul, emptying them out, creating a shell of humanity. That was his purpose, to destroy them, destroy their soul. This sermon will continue to next week, obviously. But today, let's just say that the soul is like this inner river or stream of water which gives strength and direction and harmony to every other aspect of life. 
Remember, Jesus said in John 4, the the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's what we want. The soul in proper connection to God, deriving meaning through that relationship above all else and pouring out to others in truth and love. That's what we want. And the biblical worldview is that every living thing receives its self-initiating, self-directing, self-sustaining power from the hand of God. Everything. He's the breath of life within all of us. This derivative life flows through us and out uh, from us as, as this living soul. And humans have this unique form of it in the connection with God as seen in Genesis 1-7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed his, into his nostrils the breath of life. Think about how intimate that is. Right? And he became a living being. God's soul is that which is the deepest and most fundamental level of his being. And about the person of Jesus, the Father said, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. My soul is well pleased, right? The very core of my being, I'm well pleased. And likewise, our soul is deeply connected to our Creator who breathed life into us and sustains us even now. If that breath was taken away, we'd all fall down like little puppets. And Jesus, in His human nature, in His human nature, is the ultimate essence of the person whose soul is right with the Father. And whose example is to be followed in life. The one perfect human being. The one sinless soul. (laughs) Not that we can be perfect in that emulation, but resting on the fact that He was perfect and in His obedience to the perfect law of God as, as, as it concerned His human nature, He was still crucified for our sin. He was the payment. And that should give us this gratitude that we can walk this out under the blessing of His grace. Our lives truly hidden with Christ and God, we are okay due to Jesus. We are okay. Even when we don't do it well. Job 12.10, in speaking of God, tells us in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God is in charge, right? John 5, referring to the Father and Himself, Jesus stated, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. 1 Timothy 6.13 identifies God as the one who gives life to all things. In John 10.10, Jesus said of Himself, I have come that they may have life and may have it to the full. As the Creator and the sustainer of life, it's only fitting that we stay connected to Him and we go to Him to get life and not anywhere else. So when we're speaking of the human soul, we're we're talking about something that is very profound. Something which should always be connected to the one true God. No facsimile thereof. Right? 
So when Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So this is why what you do is really important. How you drive in life, where you're going in life, is very important. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. How that flow has come out of them, right? He's saying, don't lose your soul in the pursuit of false meaning. Don't abandon it in favor of externals. Let the flow of God take you over. Let Him flow through your soul. Kill off anything which would stand in the way of it in order that it would flow out of you and out into the life of others. Because that's what we're called. That's our meaning. Don't reflect in the negative what 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. We are foreigners and exiles only in the sense that we've given over the very flow of our, of our lives to its creator once more. We've allowed him to have it back. No longer do we conform to the patterns of this world as Christians, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We no longer go with the flow of an increasingly godless society. We, our flow is congruent with Jesus and where he tells us we're going. Scriptures replete with word pictures and urgings of, of this, uh, to this end. James 1, 19-25, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How often are we called to be angry right now? Right? Called to yell on Facebook. Yell in so, all social media. How, just get mad, man. You gotta be, if you're not mad, you're not doing anything. Well, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What does God say? Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is not works-based righteousness. This is living out of faith. It's a difference. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and then after looks looks at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. The, The mirror defines who you are, defines what you look like. And we look into the mirror of Christ. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James is basically saying the same as what we've been saying for weeks. The same that is in Romans 12, 1 and 2 and other places. Submit yourselves to Christ. Root yourself in truth. Go with the flow of life which begins with and is sustained by Jesus. Don't be duplicitous. Don't say one thing and do another. But walk this out really well with Him and with others.
Spend the necessary time to look deeply into the law of God, to to mull over the Scriptures. A quiet time is super important in your Christian walk. Commune with God the, the Father, God the Creator, and ask yourself, how's my soul? Because the good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil that is stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are present and you are here and that you are building into each one of us. And we know that you are going to carry that on to completion, that that is a promise. But Father, we don't want to hold back the process. We want to be walking with you well, walking with you deeply hearing you speak, listening to your words. There are so, there's so much chatter going on in our brains all the time out there from all the different avenues in life. There's so much that tells us what we should be or how we should react or what we should be doing or where we should be going or what, what's going to make us happy or what's going to make us fulfilled and all that kind of garbage. And we just pray, Father God, that you would silence those voices and that you would put them in line with your truth, that we would, we would seek out who you are and what you are in this world and that you would become our delight, that walking with you would become the thing that... that puts wind in our sails and makes us soar. We thank you for that. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.